Pastor Jason would like to thank Tim Keller, whose words contributed a lot to this sermon. Amen. I just want to be quiet for a little while. Yeah. Um, this Christmas uh, series is centered around Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that wonderful, beautiful picture of Christ and his humility and things like that. And, you know, where Paul urges us to emulate Jesus. And uh, I, I would urge you in your own quiet times to grab hold of that passage in, for the next few weeks. Just center your quiet times around that. And you can pull in other passages or verses that we use during these sermons. And it would be really, I think it would be really good that we're all going in the same direction. Uh, if you don't go to a community group, you, you can always download the questions from the sermons every Monday afternoon uh, off the website and use that as your quiet time thing as well. But uh, I want to begin a little differently this morning. In a world of such vitriol and perceived hopelessness, the message of hope in Jesus is of utmost importance to us right now. It's always been important, right? But it is much more important right now in such a divided country and in, under such hot, in a hot climate. So I would ask that just for this moment, close your eyes, go into a prayerful uh, state. Um, so if, if, if everybody's closed their eyes, I want to meditate a, a minute on the world we live in. And I'm going to voice some words that would be all too familiar to you right now as we do that. So let's just go quiet for a moment. Mass shootings. Murder. Rape. Bombings. Sex trafficking, pedophilia, priests, immigration, border issues. Hashtag Me Too. Sexual dysphoria. Racism. Politics. So open your eyes. How do you feel? Great, great stirring way to start the morning, Jason, right? (laughs) Boy, that really lifted my spirits, right? Uh, if I could have taken your pulse or your heart rate before we started that and afterwards, I wonder if it would have increased a, a little bit. Or if I could measure your emotions, would you be a little bit more, you know, a little down or angry or tense after hearing those words in a meditative state, right? Um, as I speak with people right now, a lot of people, as I speak with them, There is a perceived hopelessness in the world. 
People are overwhelmed, they are sad, they are depressive, they are anxious, and they are full of fear. Full of fear. I mean, fear just comes out in all kinds of ways. Safety is our catchword in this country right now, right? But let me ask you the question, is that where Jesus wants us to live? Depressive and fearful and angry. Is that where he wants us to live? Now, I'm not, I, I don't want you to take on guilt if you feel those feelings a lot right now. That's not my purpose, is to make you feel guilty. But I'm hoping and I'm praying that today and during this series that God would inject a little bit of hope into you. Right? Lift your spirits some. Because there is a balance in the Christian life of our concern for issues out there in the world while also living in the freedom of the joy and grace of God. Right? There is, there is some balance there that we need to get to. We need to run to. We should be people of a deep heart. We, we worp, wor, worship and strongly and we, we weep when we see things uh, of injustice and hurt in the world. We, we want to feel those feelings, but we don't want to be controlled by those feelings. So I pray for hope to be injected to you today. And I put you to, to you this morning that this is a focus issue. It is a spiritual issue. It's not a political issue. It's not like anything else. It is a, it is a spiritual issue for everybody, not just us as Christians. But to live in anxiety's grip is a spiritual dilemma that I believe is remedied only by hope in Christ, only by hope in Jesus. But many of us feed ourselves only on the spiritual potato chips and soda of life that our culture offers us. We consume everything spiritually bad for us in a sense, right? And while Jesus extends to us healthy spiritual veggies and you know living water and things like that, and as a result, our spiritual lives seem overweight and sluggish and sickly, cancerous and diabetic, right? Last week, we introduced this series talking about Jesus' humility from that passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. What a, it's just such a wonderful, beautiful passage. And today, we're going to see, I hope, that in God's kingdom, His humility paves the way to real, lasting hope. We're going to see that weakness leads to strength. And these words, these ideas come to life in that description of Jesus in Philippians 2. And we're going to especially recall right now verse 6, which references Jesus. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He represents or he presents himself in humility as humble, right? Embracing the frailty and the weakness of his human nature, Jesus revealed the strength which comes from humility. My wife said to me last week, just as a side note, she goes, I've I've never heard a, a sermon on pride and humility in the church. I was surprised by that. But I, as, as a matter of fact, as I asked a few people, they're like, yeah, I've never heard that. I was like, wow, <laughs> maybe I need to do that more. But Jesus reveals strength, which comes from humility, whereas the default position of everybody else in the world is always from pride, right? 
Always. Larger and smaller amounts, maybe. But Jesus comes to us humbly, bringing hope for a world that is in desperate need of it. He didn't come in as a general of an army, but as a vulnerable child. He didn't come in as an arrogant tyrant or a boastful sort of leader or a militant activist. He came as a baby reliant on his teenager, teenage mother and adoptive father, by the way. But that infant that came was like no other. He was unique. He was holy and absolutely unique. The angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 prophecies to the uniqueness of Jesus as an infant. He says, you, he's speaking to Mary. He says, you will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus and he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Amen. I'm glad he said that. (laughs) Right? Hopes of virtue. Hopes of virtue and like courage and like trust and like restraint and perseverance and faith and justice. Hopes a muscle that we must work and develop. We don't want our hope to atrophy. Hope must be cognitively engaged and practiced, right? We must place our sights on that which is hopeful, not the hopeless of the world. The hopeless things, the hopeless thing, the, the things just, just that we feel are taking over when they're really not. Right now, many of us need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, not just for ourselves, but for the world at large, for everybody. What is available in Jesus? Because our witness is at stake. That's an important thing, your witness. And it's at stake. We've got to ask ourselves, are we really a people of hope? That's a big question if you think about it. Are we really a people of hope? Are are, are we, you know... Or are we just living some sort of a false hope, like a religiosity that doesn't really have any power, trusting just really in our human abilities, even though we're proclaiming Jesus in our, in our words, although we've seen that that just fails us over and over and over again? Or worse, are we simply living totally and absolutely hopeless like all the others out there right now? Many publications report that suicide rates are skyrocketing ever since 2006. I don't know why. And I, I forget the number of how many are per year, but they're at a 30-year high. And, but that's, that's only recorded deaths. For every, if you want to call it a successful suicide, if there is such thing as a successful suicide, for every one of completed suicides, there are 90 attempts. 90 attempts. That's crazy numbers, right? People are hopeless. Hopeless. So the ability to have and experience the virtue of hope in our own lives depends on humility. But how are those two connected, hope and humility? Well, firstly, we have to point to our source of hope, right? Our humble king. You've probably heard those commercials on on the radio. I always listen to KYW. And... uh, these commercials always come on where they they have services which help businesses find the right employee, right? And um, one woman said, you know, to find the right employee for a position that she's got open is like finding the elusive unicorn, 
right? And then she says, oh, but after I use the service, you know, I found a short list of unicorns. Oh, you know, she's all excited, you know, right, right person for the right experience, right credentials and all that stuff. Well, if anyone could have been impressed with their credentials, it would have been Jesus. If he could have bragged, he, he you know, or if anybody could brag, he, he could, right? The terms attributed to, to him in Gabriel's prophecy are like the highest resume put forth for the position of divine Savior and Lord in this world. The elusive unicorn of humility and hope for humanity is found in Jesus. Found in Jesus. The Old Testament adds the words to his resume, mighty God and prince of peace. The New Testament adds king of kings and lord of lords. Can't go any higher than that, right? <laughs> Looking at his titles, which are all overwhelmingly divine in nature, they reveal his equality with God. He was fully human, but he was fully God as well, something he didn't flaunt or consider to be used to his own advantage, Philippians 2.6. As a matter of fact, if you remember the story, when they came to arrest him, Peter drew out his sword this is what I would have done. I'm a hothead. He drew out a sword. He chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Yeah. Get on it, Peter. You know? That's what I would have done. But Jesus said, you know, Peter, put your sword back in its place. That's not how I do things. Swords aren't the way of humility and hope. Swords aren't the way of my kingdom. And as a matter of fact, he, said, he then said in Philippians, or Matthew 26, 53, he said, Do you not think that I can call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, an army behind me? He could have rolled in with power like a divine wrecking ball, leveling anything which didn't reflect his character or his desire for the world. And there's plenty out there. We all know it, right? But the problem with that would have been twofold. Firstly, it wouldn't be loving, which is outside of his character. And secondly, nothing would be left, including you and including me. Since Paul in Romans, quoting the book of Isaiah, said this, There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Boy, that's uplifting, Jason, right? (laughs) Well, I didn't say it. Paul did. But anyway, but it's true. It's true. It is true. Instead, God came to us in a different way than we'd expect of a ruling king. A totally different way in loving humility as an infant birthing hope into the, the world. The scriptures seem to communicate that Jesus' hopeful vision of who he was and who you and I are and who all the people around him at the time were wasn't predicated on his view of himself. Rather, in every turn, we see Jesus point us towards our hope, our hope in the Father. The Father who made us, the Father who loves us, the Father who cares for us like he does for all of creation, including the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, as we see in Matthew chapter 6. But how far does the Father's love go? How far does the Father's love go for you and for me and for the rest of the world? The prideful, even if they don't understand that they're prideful, and I'm prideful at times, right? The prideful trust in their own abilities, their own thoughts, and they disregard God's loving lead and God's loving guiding words for life. 
the humble learn to rely on a good God, a good God who's restoring the world, who is redeeming those who will receive Him, and also who is punishing sin and evil in the world. Because it's got to be punished. So even when it looks bleak, we know that God's will prevails in the end, right? But here's the problem right now in our society, that that punishment and judgment, those aren't words that are very popular at this moment in history. It's an an unpopular concept, judgment. And in many churches, the idea of hell and of sin even have been thrown out. They, They avoid that in their preaching. And I would say it is to their detriment. Because it does something to the message to throw that out. Think about it this way. If there's an area that's rid of uh, a predatory or an undesirable animal, like we have foxes around my house. My neighbors hate them. I love them. They make the weirdest noise, though. Have you ever heard of them? Anyway, that's a side note. But um, if if you get rid of those things, they, they go by my chicken coop every morning. But it's a fortress. My... My girls are safe, right? Because daddy loves my girls, right? She is. Anyway, if you don't know, I have nine. Well, I had nine. Two died. I have uh, seven chickens now, and they're all French ladies' names. Mm. Anyway, but, <laughs> but if you get rid of that, that, that predator in that environment, the balance of that environment you know, may be upset that all the desirable plants or some of the desirable plants and animals are lost through like overbreeding because there's a lack of food supply or whatever. And the the nasty predator that you're trying to get rid of was, you know, if it's eliminated, actually kept in balance, you know, the number of other animals and the plants necessary to that ecosystem. In the same way, if we play down the bad or the harsh doctrines within the historic Christian faith, we will find to our chagrin that we've gutted we have absolutely gutted all the wonderful, pleasant, comfortable beliefs that we have as well as Christians. They don't work without the other one. The loss of the doctrine of hell, the loss of the, the, the idea of judgment, the loss of, of the idea of God's holiness and he can't mix with sin and all that kind of stuff, does irreparable damage to our deepest comforts, our understanding of God's grace, our love, our, 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 our idea of human dignity, and our, our understanding of our value towards God. To preach the good news, you must preach the bad news. To preach the good news, you must preach the bad news. To be saved is to know exactly what you're saved from. To what what length our humble King Jesus will go to for the love of His creation, of His people. And creation, by the way. Jesus isn't the funny, soft, Barney-like creature accepting everyone no matter what they think, say, or do in the world. He must bleed for the injustices. He must bleed for the evils of the world, including my own pride. He must. He must call me back from the precipice of death, of spiritual death, Right, taking my punishment upon myself on himself, since I am totally and absolutely unable to do it myself. Neither are you. Romans, everyone has gone astray. 
We all have. And only in that, only in that do I see the hope that he brings and do I see the extent of his love for all of creation, for everybody. So unless we come to grips with the terrible, terrible doctrine of hell, we will never be able to understand the depths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We won't understand it. His body was being destroyed in the most horrific way possible. The most excruciating death he could, he could, he could have, right? But nothing compared to what was happening in his heart, in his soul. When he cried out, My God, my Father, you have forsaken me. He was experiencing hell itself. Make no mistake. If you have a mild acquaintance that denounces you or rejects you, says something bad about you, it hurts. But you can, you can walk on, right? If you have a good friend who does the same, the hurt's even worse. If, if your spouse walks out on you and says, I don't want to have anything else to do with you, you know, I never want to see you again, it's far more devastating still. And parental rejection is hell on earth. The longer, the deeper, the more intense and intimate a relationship is for us, the more torturous any separation is. Ask anybody in this room who's been divorced how hard that was, and they will tell you. It was like ripping off your arms. The son's relationship with the father was infinitely greater and longer. It it didn't even have a beginning than most any, any intimate or passionate relationship on earth. Much deeper. And when Jesus was cut off from God the Father, he went into the deepest pit, the most powerful furnace of life. Beyond all imagination, anything that you've ever experienced or probably ever will experience, and he did it voluntarily for us. Sin is slavery. Scripture even says sin is death. Right? Sin is slavery. Let's take that concept right now. You know, the making of something other than God to be our ultimate value and worth, a role nothing but God has the capacity to fill in the first place, and we know that, and that's our pride at work when we do that. Since it's not necessarily the outside thing that we're trusting in, it is the self. I think of myself better than God. I'm going to control my life. I put myself in front of Him. I put myself in the place of God. And that's the pride that we spoke of last week. And it's devastating. Sin separates us from the presence of God, Isaiah 59 2. It, it, it separates us from the sorcerer of all joy, Psalm 16 11. It separates us from love and wisdom or any good thing of any sort, James 1 17. To understand hell, we must understand sin as slavery. It is slavery. Romans 1 tells us that we're built to live for God ultimately and supremely, but instead we live for work and for, for love and for achievement and for morality, to all of this to give us meaning and worth. And thus every person, religious or not, religious or not, let me say that three times, religious or not, atheist or agnostic, or faith-filled person, whatever you want to call them, religious or not, is worshiping something. We all have our idols. We all have our pseudo-saviors to get our worth. 
Was that clear? <laughs> I think it was. But these things, these things enslave us with guilt if we don't attain them. They enslave us with anger if somebody blocks them from us. They enslave us with fear if we're threatened. They enslave us with drivenness since we feel that we must have them to survive and to thrive. And guilt and anger and fear are like fire which consumes us. Consumes us. Sins worshiping anything but Jesus. The wages of sin is death. It's la- the wages of sin is slavery. It's a bondage. And this is what Jesus comes or came for and Jesus saves us from. Our own propensity towards self-destruction. Our own propensity to eat all the, and drink all the spiritual potato chips and soda of life and never anything healthy. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce uses an illustration of hell as a bus loaded with people uh, at the border of heaven and they're told they have to throw out anything that they can't, that they can't take into heaven because there's certain things they can't take in. Just throw out the window and be rid of it. When, when confronted with Jesus, a person has a choice to turn away from and to leave behind all that which keeps us bound for eternal separation from God, or we can choose to hold on to it and not follow Jesus. Which is why C.S. Lewis referred to hell as the greatest monument to human freedom. Because we get to choose it. You and I choose hell or not in relationship to Jesus. God doesn't choose it for us. God doesn't choose it for us. Remember this when you're witnessing to somebody soon. Hell is simply the end result of all the lost opportunities, all the lost chances to turn away from sins, slavery, and back towards God, back towards joy, back towards freedom. It's the necessary place reserved for the very end, for that which is unholy, you know, given God's holiness can't mix with it. Heaven simply cannot accommodate sin and evil. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. There must be a cleansing. There must be a redemption of the person in order to enter God's presence. And that washing and that cleansing comes by Jesus' bloody sacrifice and, and, and His resurrection from the grave. Making the unholy holy. Right? His righteousness covers us, made available to us, placed upon us, making us presentable to the Father because when He looks at us, He sees His Son, Jesus. The unflinching demands of the law are met in Christ for me and for you and for everybody else out there. God doesn't invent hell to revel in punishing humankind. That's a wrong, that's a mistake. That's a bad theology, right? Right? God doesn't invent hell to revel in punishing humankind. He doesn't. It's not something he wishes on anyone. It's simply a necessary thing in dealing with evil. It's that which he wishes to save us from. And in humility, Jesus walks through its judgment and he experiences its punishment for us. And all wrong is righted in Jesus' work on the cross, and all injustice and all evil is met there, meets their end in the final judgment. 
I was watching a side note slide guy back there. I was watching uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, great, there's a great scene in there where Bilbo Baggins, who's got this ring, he's for 60 years, and, he, and he's in his house, and Gandalf, the God figure, is standing there, and Bilbo's holding this evil ring that's got a hold on him, right? And Gandalf is trying to get him to just drop the ring and leave it behind as he leaves his house to go on a trek to the Elven Kingdom or something like that. Whatever. And you guys that like know the story, you're going to be like, you told it wrong. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> it's like Star Wars people are Trekkies. It's like, shut up, God. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> but he's got this ring, and, he said, and, and he's saying, Bilbo, just, just drop it. Just leave it back behind. You don't need that. And he's like, no, you just want it for yourself. You just want to, you just want to take it from me. And this great scene where you look at Gandalf and all of a sudden he looks bigger and he straightens up and the place kind of goes dark. He goes, Bilbo Baggins, don't mistake me for some, you know, cheap conjurer of tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. And then everything gets light again. And he leans in with a soft face and he says, I'm trying to help you. That's the picture of God that we need to give to people, right? Because these are all hopeful statements if viewed through the biblical lens of hope in Christ. Those outside of the faith might view this from the wrong angle. They might say they can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Oh, that's not the kind of God I would believe in. But we're saying it's our choice to respond to him or not. The invitation is an open door. We view it from the, ang- the angle of his desire to save us from it. His pursuit of us. His willing to go to a cross and die a bloody death for us. That's crazy. <laughs> and that is not the Islamic God. And that is not anybody else's God. That is unique to us. The universal religion of humankind is this. We develop a good record, we do our good, and then we give our record to God, and He owes me. But the gospel is absolutely different. God develops the record in Jesus, right? God develops the good record, and He gives it to us, and then we owe Him our lives for it in gratitude. In short, to say that a a good person, not just a Christian, can find God is to say that good works are enough to find God. In other words, the humanistic view, the humanistic religious view, if you want to call it that, is that good people can find God and bad people can't. But if anybody's honest, everybody falls short. If you're really honest, Christians, I believe, are simply much more self-aware and much more honest about their situation. I'm honest, I can be a jerk. <laughs> I'm honest, I can be evil. What? <laughs> oh, I wish I knew who said that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I can, right? Um, the Christian view, the Christian view is much more hopeful than is the humanistic view. Since the humanistic view neither has any 
mechanism for retribution of evil in the world. Nothing gets paid for. Or nor any hopeful path to peace and to holiness. A promise. They don't have that. And if we're honest, both are exclusive views. People get in, people don't. It is Christianity is exclusive. Both are exclusive views if everybody is gut-wrenchingly honest. But the Christian view is much less exclusive given the constant open invitation and hope that we have in a very personal, down-to-earth, relational connection that we can have with God the Father through Christ the Son. Amen? Amen. So we need to embrace this hope. Embrace hope. Embrace Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. He knew, you know, he knew he was. He, he knew each title which was his to claim from the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew all that. But that doesn't seem to be the lens through which he, Jesus saw the unfolding future hope to which he has called us. Rather, like we discussed last week, we see Jesus in humility being of the ground, of the humus, right? As he taught and he demonstrated the kingdom of God for us. And all along the way, he gave glory to the God the Father himself. And this seemed to enable Jesus to not only see God's future held uh, in trust by his loving, uh, or see uh, God's future hope held in, in loving trust by his loving father, right? But his humble love seemed to then empower him, empower him to have hope for every person who ever crossed his dusty, earthy, well-worn you know, path, his human path, right? As he walked things out. Consider all the people you know, who experienced this humble king of, of love and of power in the scriptures finding hope that they never had before. Consider it. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector in, in Luke 19. Despised by all. Nobody liked the guy, right? In joy, when he, after he meets Jesus and he feels this hope from Jesus, he gives half his belongings to the poor and he pays back fourfold of all the people he cheated. That's joy. That's hope. The woman at the well, a despised Samaritan woman, to whom Jesus offered himself as the living water of life, runs back home and says, come back and see the guy that told me everything about myself. John chapter 4. The sinful woman who in her joy pours perfume on Jesus' feet, this beautiful act of worship in Luke chapter 7. People do crazy things when they meet Jesus. I mean, I could go on and on and on about people who have met and found hope in Jesus Christ, both from the Scriptures and throughout history, and I could never, ever exhaust the sources, right? Jesus had that unique ability to uphold the standards of holiness, the wonderful standards of holiness, while still being attractive and a friend to sinners, to people that needed Him. Hope produces that freedom and joy that we talked about a few weeks back. It enables us to view and to face the troubles of this world since it's not up to us to solve all the ills. I'm not, I didn't just say that we weren't supposed to care. But we can't solve them all. But we know the end story. We know the end story, right? We've read the final chapter of the book. 
God spoils the ending of history for us in Jesus. And it's a good ending. It's a wonderful ending. Who here reads the last chapter of a book before they start reading it? Does anybody do that? Yeah, you do, Ramona. Of course you do. Yeah, most people don't do that. You don't want, but we got, we've, we've read the, the final chapter, right? And in the meantime, before that final chapter is opened, the, the kingdom breaks in as God uses His church, uses His people to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of, of Christ. To bring kingdom healing, to bring kingdom hope and peace to others by emulating our humble King, Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. So we need to raise our level of hope. I want you to take a few more minutes and I want you to close your eyes again. And let's begin, close your eyes, let's begin thinking about the ways that we've depended upon ourselves as of late. How have you depended on your own decision-making abilities? Your own feelings? Your own reason? Your own impulses, desires, experience, practice, skills? Or even on something you know to be unhealthy for you, be it fantasy or thought or action? Just take a moment in silence to think about that. How are you desperately trying to fix everything? To pursue something that that won't answer that call for you? Now take a moment, still with your eyes closed, and offer up every single one of those self-dependencies. Offer up all the little pseudo-saviors to God. Ask Him to root out the pride that is in your own heart. The pride that trusts in your own abilities. Confess to Him. Staying there, I want you to turn your attention to and reflect on what God has been doing in your life. What He's doing right now in your life. Many of us never th- stop to think about this. So th- stop and think about what God is doing in your life right now. Let this, this, this awareness of God's activity in your circumstances, be it in your heart, your mind, your character, or some situation, let that start to overwhelm you. How is God working?
Now open your eyes. How high is the hope level in your heart right now? When you first started focusing on your own abilities, your own capabilities, all that kind of stuff, did it make you feel hopeful or did it make you feel sort of heavy and overwhelmed? When you really think about your life, most of us feel a little bit overwhelmed and heavy. Busy, crazy. How do I solve this? How do I get through this? We need to let the awareness of what God is doing overwhelm us. Not all the anxieties of life that we can't control. I like that the bells went on right when we started praying that prayer. I was on the phone with my spiritual director this week. I meet with him once a month telephonically by video. And he just listens to me. I, I get to talk more. <laughs> I'm good at that, apparently. But... um. Not that that's a good thing. And uh, I, I just found myself so overwhelmed, so grateful for what God is doing in my life. And not only in my life, but in your lives. I'm so overjoyed by what's happening in this church. I, and I'm just babbling to this guy. And, at the, and he hardly said a word. I pay this guy to do this, by the way. And I get to talk. I mean, just babbling at him. And then finally he just says, wow, you know, sounds like God's really doing a lot. <laughs> Well, thanks. <laughs> no, actually, he did say some other things that really made a lot of sense, but it was it's just I was overwhelmed with joy. I am so grateful for what God is doing. I'm not always like that, believe me, but uh, I'm doing that hard work right now to get to working the, the, the hope muscle, Right? I started working out with my son, Tanner. One, just hang out with Tanner because he's fun to hang out with. But two is because I was all flabby, right? And like I just lost all my muscle tone and I'm 51. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to do this, you know? And then Rachel Ruggieri said, I could probably kick your butt right now. That's, she said that to me in a park one day and I said, I'm going to start working out. So uh, <laughs> and then I'm, this summer, I'm going to challenge Rachel. I'm going to call her out. In the, no. <laughs> But we need to work those muscles, right? The hope muscles. So ponder that feeling of hope. You know, as you reflect on the Father's love for you, right? What He's doing in your life right now. It takes time. It takes, you have to actually think about it. How how detailed His care is in the fine strokes of your days and nights. If you felt hope rise in you at all, and you may not have, that's okay. Maybe it's the first time you need to practice it more. If you felt this expectation of good, this sense of connection to a future that you might not be able to fully understand and see, but it's a good future, you're experiencing the same hope that Jesus had as he moved throughout life and crowds of people preaching this life upending, this turning over of life, this message and this hope of the kingdom of God. That's what you're experiencing. And if it's just kind of whispering, that's okay. You know, one thing that uh, my spiritual director said to me was that oftentimes we have this desire to, to really connect with God, but it's buried under stuff. And you got to, you know, he said, so just pray that God pushes away all the stuff to get back to your desire, right? So act on this on, on, in the coming days. Act on it. 
Use the daily examine. If, you, if you're sitting there and we can print up more, I can send this electronic, electronically. This is just a little simple sheet that you can use at the end of your day to, you know, to kind of recount your day and all that kind of stuff. Uh, just take a few minutes, sit down with the Lord in a prayerful time, and write down in a journal. Use a journal because it, it, it helps. What you believe that he is, you've seen him doing throughout your day, what he is doing right in the moment, and in your life as a whole right now. Take the time to, to, to do that. Because gaining humility takes a tent of patience. And hope springs from our humble king in spite of what is happening in the world around us. In spite of it. The Christian is solid in their foundation. They are not knocked off center by some chaotic circumstance out there in the world. We're not. We have a loving, great God who is moving, even if it doesn't seem like it sometimes. We live in the hope of Jesus. We've read the last chapter of history. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are a humble King. That You reign in humility. You reign in love. And You bring hope to this world. The gospel is full, full, full of hope. It is good news. It's not mediocre news. It's not like half good news, half bad news. It is absolutely, totally, 110% unadulterated good news. So we pray not only for ourselves to understand that and expect that and live in that hope, but we pray that that hope would pour out into this community with every single person that we run into on the streets and at work and in our families and out with our community partners as we do our, do their, our events with them. We pray that the hope of the gospel would go forth, that you would drive back all the evil that keeps people confused and misunderstanding of what you're trying to bring to them. Father, we pray that we wouldn't be Bilbo holding onto the ring. Blaming God, blaming you for that which we should just let go and, let, and, and be rid of. We pray that your spirit would convict hearts, that we would see people come to faith this year like no other. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are no longer subjects.